I just performed or pastored a memorial service for one of my cousins. And so it, to contrast Jake's passing and my cousin's passing, I just kind of want to give you a little bit of background to this. My cousin, who was younger than me, uh, passed away during Thanksgiving weekend. So during that week, it was a sad uh, time where usually you would think of festivities, turkey and, and gravy and mashed potatoes. I'm sitting in a hospital watching my cousin die. And, and that was a shock because she was fairly young in, in many ways. She was only in her mid-50s. And she leaves behind a, a shocked husband and two children who are still grieving deeply at the sudden loss of their, their um, loved one. And, and, and Terry and I are kind of saddened because in many ways we were able to share about church, our church to her, and about how as Christians we made decisions in, in the name of Jesus Christ. But we're kind of sad that I never, personally, I never really did the bold thing to ask her if she really had any interest in the Christian faith. And in some ways, I kind of made the excuse that, well, I have plenty of time. I mean, she's younger than me, so I have plenty of time to do this. And, and it's something you kind of want to uh, do in a way that's as gentle and as loving as possible, not as in your face. But with her sudden passing, it came to a realization that her time was up and that we never know how much time we have with each other. And this urgency, this sense of urgency to reach out to others for Jesus came back into my life, is that I don't know how much time we have with each other. And there are times that will be lost if I don't take these things very seriously. And in the case of Jake, I rejoice that he is in heaven. But with my cousin, I don't know that same assurance about her eternity. And that saddens me. And I wonder if I could have made any difference in her life. Are there people you care for that you think need to hear the gospel? To hear about Jesus? And to be asked that question if they would like to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. Because that's our responsibility to do that as disciples of Christ. Everybody faces death. There's no uh, exception. Either you're rich or poor, smart or not, ugly or beautiful, um, you, you will all end up in the same fate of death. And with that, we have to be serious about giving the antidote to death, and that is eternal life through Jesus Christ, by sharing about him to others and to tell them about the good news that they can receive. We must have that urgency because time is short. No one can be certain about how much time we have. We, me included, need to regain that sense of urgency. Therefore, for my message today, the one big idea, the one thing I want you to remember leaving here is that we are to be turn signals for Jesus so people know Jesus is coming again. Again, the big idea is that we should be turn signals for Jesus so that others may know that Jesus is coming. Now I'm using this picture or this word picture of a turn signal. A lot of times people use the mission that we as disciples of Jesus Christ have is that we're supposed to be mirrors, right? We reflect the glory of God to others. And it's also said that we are also be signposts, that people look at us and we are pointing to Jesus. 
So I'm going to use a different word, word image here. I want us to be turn signals. So why a turn signal? What does a car turn signal do? And, and as I was preparing for this message, my wife reminded me, and it's something I, I took for granted, but apparently it, it can be true. Parents tell me that a lot of younger people kind of procrastinate driving, learning how to drive. And actually many uh, young people I know go to college, they don't even have their driver's license yet. And so this concept of everyone knowing how to drive is kind of different now. And so maybe you don't know how to drive and use a turn signal. And so to help us all, and some of us may need a reminder, I, it's amazing what you can find on YouTube. Here's a video, it's a tutorial on how essentially people behave badly. It's a feature that uh, a, a journalist, Stanley Roberts, does. And I want you to take a look at this video. All right, that's a little reminder about a, a, a turn signal. For those of you who don't know how to use it, it's pretty universal in most cars. It's a stock on the driving steering wheel. And you flip it down to turn left, flip it up to go right. And, and, and that's an important device because what a turn signal is, it's supposed to get other people's attention. And I think a lot of us have lost that ability to do that, demonstrated by that video. But in an analogy, I'm using the turn signal and, and actually the forgetfulness to use it is the same reason why as Christians, we forget that our mission is supposed to share the gospel with others, to get their attention. Back in the day when I was uh, learning how to drive on my test, uh, driving test, I remember getting docked for, for not using the turn signal. In San Francisco where I, I learned to drive, there's a lot of double parked cars. And so on a driving test, on a road test, you don't want to have any surprises. And, but there was a car that was parked in, and, uh, and double parked. So I looked over my shoulder, which you're supposed to do, went around the car, and, and, and then made a safe uh, passing. But I realized on the, when they gave me the sheet that I forgot to do the turn signal thing. So it's kind of a thing that out of habit, a lot of times we forget how to do things that we were supposed to do. And I know with turn signals, we can do that, just, just like that, that uh, video demonstrated. For us this morning, that's why I want us to look at Matthew 3. We're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 12, just to get an idea of how John the Baptist was a turn signal for God. So it was read to you before um, by Diana, and, and looking at that, uh, I want to give a little bit of background of who John the Baptist is. John was Jesus' cousin. They were about the same age because John's mother, Elizabeth, was pregnant with him about the same time as Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. So they're cousins. They're about the same age. And John had a, a mission. He had a calling from God. And it, it was said in verse 3 in, in Matthew 3, it said, this is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. So clearly in verse 3, the mission for John was to clear a straight path for the Lord, referring to, to Jesus. So in a sense, he is preparing for Jesus, just like we're supposed to do today during Advent, or actually what I'm making a case for all the time, preparing the way for Jesus. 
he preached a message to repent and be baptized. And for me, John was like a turn signal because he, like a turn signal, got people's attention by how wild he looked. The scripture says here in verse 1 and 4 to 6 that, that John, through the, the type of clothing he wore, the type of food that he ate, and his lifestyle got people's attention. He looked like a wild man. So he looked different than what was commonly acceptable in that culture. But he was doing this for a purpose, that he would get people's attention. And also, in some ways, to demonstrate that he was set apart by God for a particular purpose. It says there in verse 1 that he was preaching in the desert. And in some, some say, in some translations, it's wilderness. So desert, wilderness. And so being in the wilderness is not really something that, that's commonly done. Not a lot of us would want to live in the desert. We tend to want to live where there is uh, running water, electricity. But John chooses to be different, and he goes and, and lives in the desert. And in verse 4, uh, it tells he has clothes made out of camel hair, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. So when you're in the wild, if you're in a desert, you can't be eating uh, fancy, delicate uh, foods. So you, eating insects is not a problem. And so he's demonstrating that that's fair game. And so here, John is simply uh, demonstrating a, a kind of a protest, a visible protest to the self-indulgence that his community was living in. That he, by living simply, by eating simply, and, and choosing to to uh, wear simple clothing, he was stating that he was being set apart for God and not living the opulent lifestyle that tended to be the, the norm for a lot of the people, even in his culture. I mean, if you go now about 2,000 years afterwards, it doesn't seem to be much different in our culture today. Uh, Tim Keller, a, a New York pastor and, and author, says that our society here in America has an idolatry over consumerism and materialism, and that is eating away at the souls of people here in America. And whether you're a Christian or unchristian, that we're not immune to that susceptibility. This wild look that John had apparently did not hurt him, because you would think being that kind of esoteric, kind of be eccentric, that, that you would think that would be something that people would stay away from. But according to the scripture, crowds, people who wanted to know more, went to him. Even though he's in a remote place in the desert, they went to him to hear him preach and to hear his message about Jesus Christ. And so my question for all of us this morning, do we look wild to other people when they look at us? Do we look like we set ourselves apart from the norm for Jesus Christ? And, a, and this wildness that we have would attract them to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Now, recently, our church sent a team down to, to Tijuana. And short-term missions is actually one way that you can demonstrate being set apart. That, that it's a... It's a real tangible way of going on missions. You demonstrate that you're different. Because in, in, at least in my circles, even in my, unchurched, in my unchurched family, a lot of them think we're crazy 
taking vacation time to go serve God. Because vacation time is so precious, and they say, well, it's better to go to places that, that are our own entertainment for our own, own enjoyment. So when they hear that we, as Christians, go on these missions, that that's crazy to them. And also that we would spend our own money to do that. And that's another thing, is that when we uh, charitably give to, to uh, ministries, to missions, that I have family members, friends that think that's crazy. Because why would you spend hard-earned money and give it away like that? And that's one way we can demonstrate how we can be different, kind of wild. I know a lot of times when the times that I went on these trips, that even when we go as a group, that when we, we were at the airport, we stand out. And everybody watching or wondering what we do. And some will ask. And we have an opportunity to share with them what we're about to do. And even when we go to the bank and, and get foreign currency, a lot of times they'll ask, what are you using it for? And it's a great opportunity at those moments to share about Jesus because you're saying to them, to the bank teller, I'm going to a missions to build homes, or I'm going overseas to serve in an orphanage. These are ways that we can naturally demonstrate that we have a, a so-called wild side for Jesus. The next thing I see that turn signals um, can do, they're essentially a message. They communicate a message to others. The first thing is they attract attention by their blinking. The second thing is that they have a message. And John has a message. His message is about the coming of Jesus. In verse 2, John says, Repent, for the kingdom of the heaven is near. He speaks of the kingdom of heaven is near. And he's referring to Jesus being near. Because where Jesus is, is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. And spiritually, it's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God coming soon. And verse 11, John continues to tell that Jesus is coming. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The image here of fire, and I'm going to talk about fire later too, is mentioned multiple times in this passage. And in this, this case, in verse, in verse 11, the use of fire... Um, could be one of two things in interpretation. One, it could be judgment. But I think better, it's, it's more for refinement. That when Jesus comes to baptize us, he comes not just with water, but he comes with the Holy Spirit. And, and so the gift of the Holy Spirit is given through Jesus Christ. But also, there's a fire of transformation. That there is a molding, a, 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 a reshaping of us by, by the Holy Spirit. That, that prunes us, essentially, of, of the things that need to be done and is done by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And so that fire versus the, uh, a fire of, of judgment, this is more a fire of, of um, transformation. And so the question, like I had a question for the first characteristic of a turn signal, the second one of having a message, my question for us to think about is, how do we share the message of Jesus? Do we take uh, a proactive role in sharing those, in those in our circles that, that, that don't know him? How do we share Jesus Christ to others? And, and to be honest, 
I believe many of us have, have a kind of an apprehension to do this. It's, it's uh, sometimes difficult, especially in the Bay Area, which it tends to be a diverse, very highly tolerant, so-called tolerant community and uh, trying to be politi politically correct. A lot of times Christian viewpoints are not received really well. And so that increases the anxiety and the apprehension, but it doesn't excuse us from the responsibility of doing it. And, and now during Christmas time, I feel this is probably the easiest time to share about Jesus. I mean, Christmas, even if you're secular, you can honestly you know, understand the tradition of Christmas as being the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And, and, and everywhere you go, there's Christmas music. And, and it's funny to me when you hear Christmas music at the mall or in elevators and doctor's offices, wherever, you know, they're playing traditional Christian hymns. I mean, we sang some this morning, but those are a message in themselves about Jesus Christ. So wherever you can, if you have people you know, that's one subtle, indirect way to introduce the message of Jesus. Just play Christian Christmas songs in your car or in your office if you can do that um, at family gatherings. I mean, that's a great way, an easy way to introduce Christmas. And, and for Terry and I, a lot of times in our uh, non-Christian family gatherings, uh, we would introduce icebreaker games. Because usually when you host them, um, uh, usually your guests don't object to anything you do because you're feeding them. And so you have a certain amount of, of power and authority to do that. When you do that, we, we had certain games that, that would be a mixture of, of secular uh, things, but we would mix in Christian uh, um, uh, features. Like, I, I, I learned this from someone, I can't remember who, but it was a, it was a game of Jeopardy. And you have different topics, like you have Christmas songs, um, the birth of Jesus, and, and whatever. And, and you would just put them as topics, and then there would be like the $10 category, $20, and then you just gather questions. Uh, and, and even uh, unchurched people are very competitive. So they'll, they'll answer those questions just to get the prizes, whatever they may be, may be especially if it's cash. And in that way, you are introducing the gospel in a way that, that, that's, that's digestible by them, by a competitive game, uh, entertaining game, but the topics that you're introducing are related to Jesus. And a lot of us have Christmas cards and we send Christmas letters, and that is one way you have permission to send to other people about uh, your life with Jesus. And it's a great time to do that during Christmas time. So I just gave you a few examples. Be creative. But that's our responsibility, to share the message of Jesus Christ to others, because that's what term signals do. They have a message, and it's important that that message be, be delivered. The turn signal can also be confrontational, right? I don't know if you ever encountered this. I'm sure you have in the Bay Area. You know, when, when you're in rush hour traffic, there's a traffic jam, right? And you're trying to get on or off the freeway especially getting uh, onto the freeway, usually the merge lane, there's like two rows of car. And usually there's the, the farther left one in the, in the merge lane, everybody's lined up. 
and there's always a lot of space on that, that uh, side, on the side, on, almost on the shoulder. But cars would just speed past you on that side to get to the front of the line and then do a quick signal and then kind of merge quickly into the, into the uh, freeway. Now, as a good Christian, you know, we're supposed, when we see that, we're supposed to say, oh, okay, be my guest. Now, I don't know, it, there's only a limit to how much charity I have in letting those people come. So there are times where you just go tailgate to the guy right in front of you and there's no way they can cut into you. Not saying I do that, but I just say, <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> but what I'm saying here is sometimes the turn signal has to be confrontational. And John, in this passage, like a turn signal, is confrontational with his message. John challenged others to change direction. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 9. In this passage, he specifically is challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees. From verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So a little bit of a background of who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are. The Pharisees were the uh, elite class of teachers of the law. They were traditional Jewish um, leaders. And, and they were apparently very legalistic in the interpretation of the Mosaic law. And they were also very hypocritical. And, and, and as because the Christianity was supposed to be inclusive, Jesus' intent, but the Pharisees were being exclusive, that they were lording people by separating them out because by, by minutia in the legalism of the law of trying to be a good Christian. And the Pharisees carried over those, those legalistic listic things in, uh, into, the, into, into religion and to faith, and, and so John was challenging them. And uh, Sadducees were... Um, the wealthy class, they had a very unorthodox uh, theology. They, they were very secular, very political, and they, they uh, didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, and they didn't believe in spirits. And, and so Pharisees and Sadducees were um, totally out of bounds in the new faith. And, and they were, though, coming to, to John to be, to be baptized because they were kind of covering all their bases. But John confronted them and said, there is no way, because I can see that you're not coming with a repentant heart. Because John had a message that to enter the kingdom of God, you had to repent and be baptized. But they were coming to be baptized without repenting of their hypocrisy and of their secular political ways and non-belief of spiritual powers. And they were basing it on a traditional hereditary kind of basis of coming into the kingdom by saying that we have a covenant through Abraham and we automatically get a pass. And John was saying, no, there's a new world order, that that doesn't go anymore, that now you have to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. 
to be able to enter into the, into the, to the new, new kingdom. And John called them vipers. A viper is a snake, a serpent. So essentially, he's connecting the Pharisees and the Sadducees with Satan, with devil. Because in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that story, the serpent in there is a representation of Jesus, of, of Satan. The snake and the serpent are not of Jesus, but are of the devil and are evil. And so John is calling them evil. So given that, that example from, from John, my question for all of us, do we have the courage to challenge other people in their worldview? And it's not easy. You're going to take a lot of hits doing that. But I believe there are times where it is appropriate. Uh, my father-in-law was uh, uh, asking Terry and I uh, kind of a counsel on, on a particular decision that he wanted to uh, pursue. And some of it was anxiety over his own personal uh, long-term care, some financial issues. And I'm not going to go into details, but he, he asked for my counsel. And, and I, when I heard it, I was shocked in one way. In a sense, I, I, I told him point blank, I said, you know, this is illegal. I mean, this is fraud. I, I, this is minimally dishonest. And as a Christian, as a man of God, I can't, I can't uh, condone this. And, 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 you know, I have that kind of relationship with my father-in-law where I can say straight up things with that, uh, more so than maybe Terry can and, and maybe his children, because I really don't care. <laughs> so I say these days straight up to him. And, and in some ways, Terry said he respects me for that. Because... It doesn't shock him, and he kind of knows in some ways I'm going to say that, but uh, so I just say it to him. And I don't do it all the time. I, I'm trying to be uh, kind and loving at other times in, in, in ways that aren't as shocking like that, but there are times I think it's appropriate. And at that time, he was asking for my advice, and I said, no way. I mean, for one, I, I believe this is against what God t tells us to do. And then I had to, at that moment, I said, I know you don't believe that there's a God. And, and I know that, that that's not big in, in your life. But, you know, because a lot of times you ask for my counsel and, and you go ahead and do something different. And, but you, you keep asking for my, my advice. And, and there must be a reason. But one, right here, I know you don't know that you don't believe there's a God. But you know that Terry and I believe there's a God. And your grandchildren know that, that there's a God. And, and, and we're, I'm telling you, you know, for the things you were concerned with, if you believed in a God, you would have a peace and comfort over those issues and not be having any worries or, or anxieties. But for whatever reason, you don't believe there's a God, but you still ask for my counsel. And you know that I'm not a stupid guy, not a dumb guy. That's why you ask for my counsel. So in that very case, what if you're wrong about your belief that there's no God? What if you're wrong and Terry and I are right? And there's would be this silence. But that's okay. Because it was my responsibility to confront him in his disbelief 
and especially that could lead to some dishonest act that I could not be a part of and not just turn my eyes away from. Times as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be confrontational, especially for those that we care and love for, uh, love, because uh, if we don't, no one else is going to do it. Finally, um, John is a turn signal because he warned of danger. And turn signals do that. They warn of danger if not heeded. In verse 10 and verse 12, John says, he gives a warning about judgment day that is coming when Jesus returns. Danger is ahead if not heeded. The ax is already at the root of the trees in verse 10. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12 says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Both verses speak of a fire, a fire that destroys, destroys the unfruitful tree that's chopped down, a fire that burns the chaff, which is a useless, useless part of, of wheat. It implies a sense of a place called hell. However you want to understand that, that meaning of fire, I don't think it's something that you really want to happen to yourself or to ones that you love. It's a harsh reality of what that fire can do. And to avoid that kind of scenario, there's only one solution I know, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, I have a question for all of us. Can you, can I warn others about Judgment Day without offending them? And I know that's a really tough topic to bring up, even for in among Christian circles about the existence of hell. And, and it's something that, that's not easy to do, to be honest. To share about um, eternal um, fire um, is, a, is challenging. But if we care about them, we must. And so here's a kind of a suggestion. I think the best way, I, I heard this from uh, another uh, preacher, that the best way to share about Judgment Day is how to avoid it. And the way to avoid it is by telling your testimony, your story. Because nobody can deny what you believe in. You can't tell other people to do uh, something they don't want to do. But you can always share about your own story, how you made your decision to follow Jesus Christ. And by doing so, it would at least show an example through your story of the solution. And then in that story, you can say, the way to escape eternal death and to have eternal life is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that way, it's a little bit more or less offensive by telling your own story. And that's one thing we're responsible for doing is to tell our life story in Jesus to other people. And in that way, you can say, that's how I will escape the eternal judgment that comes to all of us. So someone else could believe it or not believe it, but that's one way of not being so in their face about it, but you could say it about yourself. And that, I think, is a 
a good way of being able to share that. As I mentioned, this season in my life, I've gone to a lot of memorial services and performed a lot of memorial services. Um, about a year ago, another one of my cousins on, on my other family side passed away too, uh, in her mid-50s, very young, leaving behind again two devastated children, devastated husband and, and siblings. And, and it's really sad to see that. And again, I, I don't believe she was churched. I, I lost relationship with her from, from many years ago. We were very close when we were younger, but not so much now uh, as when we became adults. But because we were disconnected for a while, her sisters, she had four sisters, the, we got together for a family gathering and we did a little bit of catching up. And it was opportunity during that time to share about my life and Terry's lives and a lot about our church life. And, and one of my cousins gave me the great opening by saying, well, what's new in, or what's new with you? And, and so the perception of my cousins uh, when we were growing up always felt, they always felt that my brother and I had a charmed life, that we lived a really good life, that everything was very smooth and hunky-dory very successful, whatever. And, and I kind of wanted to break that image that they had of me. And, and I said, you know, uh, there was a time in my life that, that I suffered a lot of depression and, and life was not worth it. And at that time, I shared uh, with them that, that I said a prayer to ask Jesus to save me. And when he saved me, I had an amazing peace and comfort that came over me that I had never experienced before. And so from the outside, you thought I was successful, but inside I was dying. And after my, my commitment to Jesus and to serve him as a pastor now, I have a new joy and a new life that I don't have that darkness in me anymore. And in that way, I shared with them about Jesus. And it piqued their interest. And so we talked a little bit more about that. But that is a way that, that, that we can confront, we can share about the difficulty about being out of relationship with Jesus in a way that, that, that can be, be uh, not as offensive, in a way that, that can be appreciated by others, because we never know, unless we get frank and we get deep with others, what they're going through. Because I venture to say that a lot of our fears, our same anxieties, things that we worry about, other people have the same, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. And the solution, at least the benefit that we have, is that as Christians, we have Jesus alongside us. By telling others our story in Christ, we can help them hopefully make decisions to have the same relationship we have and avoid the consequences of not. As I said earlier, uh, Advent is the time of preparation. It's the time to prepare for Jesus Christ. And I'm making a case that I think we should be doing this all the time, every single day. That's our responsibility. And so for uh, something to, to, to do in the weeks to come, I, I listed in your programs or these four questions. Maybe take one of those questions and, and reflect on it and challenge yourselves to find if there is something you can change in yourself, things that you see that would be beneficial to be able to make yourself a better turn signal for, for Jesus. And those questions are, 
do I look wild to other people when they look at me? Do you look like you're different than the crowd? Second question, how do I share about Jesus? How can I creatively do this? And the third question, do I challenge people's worldview? I mean, I think that's something we must do. Not easy, but we must. And how can we warn others about Judgment Day? And I suggest just be comfortable in sharing your testimony in all situations. So let's be turn signals for Jesus so others know he is coming. Time is short, it's urgent, and it's of the essence. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you give us the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, and that is your Son, Jesus Christ. During Advent, we are preparing for that time of his coming, and it's something that we must be reminded that we should be preparing for his coming until he does come. I pray for all of us to have that sense of urgency to be able to share this message with others because their eternal lives matter. It's urgent and so critical. Father God, we're just thankful that you have the grace and mercy to give to us where we are unfaithful. But we're thankful that you continue to uh, invite us into your community and your family. So may this be our commitment to you not just this day, but all year round to the day we depart from this earth. So I thank you in Jesus' name.